New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We all want to express our creativity and act from inspiration. We strive to be a more compassionate, generous, and joyful person. So how can we be what we are longing for? How may we stay on the path to peace, personal transformation, freedom, and authenticity? How may we embody transformational humor, and how will it help us on the path? We'll explore these questions and more with our guest today, Dr. Laura Basha. Laura Basha holds a combined doctorate in clinical and organizational psychology. She's an international consultant in leadership development and personal coach. She's also a fine artist whose paintings reside in many private collections. She's the author of The Inward Outlook, Join us for the next hour as we explore what we can do to have more joy, happiness, and peace in our lives with our guest, Dr. Laura Basha. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'd like to go a little bit back into your background in mm-hmm. how you got into this whole philosophy of the inward outlook. And you started off as a psychology major in the early 70s. But at that time, you weren't enamored of that study, and you changed fine arts. Can you say something about that, please? Oh, sure. Uh, I was always interested in the field of psychology. Uh, and when I began my undergraduate work, it was actually the late 60s. And so I found that most of the department had come out of the 60s, and the the uh, the folks teaching and the students in the department weren't as grounded as I was looking for in that field. So I decided at that point to change my major to art and just express the more um, creative side of myself. And then you ran across a couple of mentors at some point. So talk about the two people that most influenced you in those years to get back into psychology. Well, it was probably uh, another mm, 15 years before I really got back into psychology. So the years in between, 
uh, I utilized my art degree. I was a, a color artist and fashion consultant for 10 years. Um, and at that time, I met the woman who was to become my spiritual teacher, and that was the Reverend Catherine Jarvis. She would, had been the head of the Unity Training School in Shreveport, Louisiana, and she also was head of Silent Unity, which was the International Prayer Ministry. So for 15 years, I studied healing with Catherine Jarvis, and we worked with people from around the world, um, who many of whom had dire circumstances or terminal illnesses, and we would get good reports back. The doctors were amazed. The doctors were amazed. And it was very, it was anonymous. We didn't know who these people were, but it was a definite training ground to integrate the practicality of healing with the spirituality of the process, if you will. So a lot of the effectiveness of the work that I've done over the years goes back to that foundational work with Catherine Jarvis. Um, at that time, I was studying for the ministry. Towards the late 80s, uh, I decided that I really didn't want a congregation, that I wanted to be more out in the world. And um, I had also, in the early 80s, uh, sort of jumped into the human development movement out here in the in California, so I did a lot of transformational work. And that's also been something of interest to me that continues to this day. Um, but I um, I came across the name through a friend of mine of Sidney Banks. This was probably the late 80s. And Sidney Banks was a Scotsman who had an eighth grade education. Uh, and he had an experience with light. He, the way he tells it, he was walking along the beach with a friend and he was complaining about his marriage and the difficult childhood he had had and was really rather depressed having a difficult time. And his friend said to him, well, you know, Sid, uh, it's just your thinking. And there was something in that phrase that had Sid sort of open up. And for four days, he had an experience with light where he sort of had this download of what how our thinking creates our experience. And after those four days, long story short, he was not recognizable. And he started telling his wife, Barb, that he was going to speak to the great psychologists of the world and transform the field of psychology. And of course, they thought he'd really gone off the deep end. But what started happening, because at this time, he was living off the coast of Vancouver on Salt Spring Island, and people started coming to him and asking him, what is the nature of God and spirituality, and he would just start talking to people. And the community in Salt Spring Island uh, became known as a community of people who uh, were, their marriages had healed, and there was a lot of harmony on the island. And um, so two uh, psychologists heard about Sid's work, and they couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. So one was Dr. George Pransky, and one was Dr. Roger Mills. Uh, George Pransky uh, was a psychologist in the clinical field, and Roger Mills was a psychologist in social psychology and community work. So independently, they went up to hear about this guy, Sid Banks, and 
the way they tell it is they couldn't quite understand what he was saying, but they walked away really seeing that he was onto something. So they started studying with Sid, and each one of them co-founded a model of psychology, which was called Psychology of Mind. It was uh, later called Health Realization, and now it's called the Three Principles Work. And George took Sid's work and integrated it into clinical work, and Roger took Sid's work and integrated it into community work. And now, who did you actually meet? Did you meet George, or who did I've you meet? I've actually worked with all three of them. Uh, mm-hmm. I had the privilege of working with all of them. So you, you met Sidney? I met Sid, and I met George. The first time I heard Sid speak was at Mills College in, um, I think it was 1990 or 1989. And Is he still living? Sid passed away. He made his transition a few years ago, as did Roger. George is uh, still with us. He's up in northern Washington. He has a, a, he, I'm not sure if he's still practicing, but he has a group of people. Mm-hmm. So I, at that time, flew up to Laconner, Washington, and spent uh, some time with George and I started studying with George, and then I met Roger a few months later and started uh, down in Palo Alto, started studying with Roger. And that was really the beginning of me jumping in and into that community. Now, I um, you, ha- you started to do your clinical work in, what, a psychiatric hospital somewhere with this kind of background. Am I correct in that? Well, no. Actually, um, Mike— Clinical work began um, in 1992. I never wanted to go back to school after I got my bachelor's, but after getting into this work, it was a dream come true for me to combine the spiritual understanding mm-hmm. I had with psychology, and that's what Sid's work really was doing. And uh, so in 1992, I decided to go back to graduate school and get a master's in counseling psych, and then I stayed on and did my clinical work. You tell a very interesting story in the book that I know our listeners would love to hear, and this is where you would work with um, schizophrenic people. Mm -hmm. Talk about how you worked with them and how that was different than what the other practitioners were doing at that time. Well, um, I was fortunate enough to work in a clinic uh, that was um, headed up by the director was someone who had been my supervisor in graduate school. He was uh, Dr. Meiji Singh, who is still with us, and a very spiritual man. And um, so that was the leadership inside the clinic. We would co-lead 15 schizophrenics a day for five hours a day. Uh, These were people who were the most difficult cases in the county. Um, The county was spending tens of thousands of dollars apiece on them annually, and they were not having good results. So those are the people that came to us. And uh, when you walk into a room, at least this was my experience, of 15 schizophrenics, you can feel your sanity sort of get sucked out. So our job was to bring that back into focus. And um, specifically, you worked with one person who was worried that somebody would jump out and 
and grab her. Yes. And, and you said to her, um, well, that could happen or something. Sure. Uh, this was a patient who obviously I've disguised in the book, her identity. But she was um, uh, had very pressured speech. She would just look down at the floor and would never look up at you. You should hardly get a breath in, and she would tell this story over and over and over again. And she was always told that it was delusional, that this stuff wouldn't happen. She was concerned that uh, she was connected with some musicians and she was concerned that they were going to jump out of the bushes and attack her when she was on her way home. And so I listened and I listened. Uh, And by the way, one of the things I would always do before I would meet a patient for the first time is I would not read the patient notes from other practitioners because I wanted to have... A, a sort of clean slate on what I was hearing from them. Now, I would go back to the notes afterwards because I always checked them. But if I read them first, I would have somehow colored my thinking about what was there, and I couldn't maybe hear what was possible. So I'm listening to her. Now, part of the thing that helped me with her was my first husband was a musician, and I knew the world of musicians, and I knew how crazy it could get. So I listened, and I finally said to her, I believe you. Let's go on with that story in just one moment. I want to tell our listeners I'm here with Dr. Laura Basha, and she is the author of The Inward Outlook. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, whitebirdrising.com, whitebirdrising.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Laura Basha, and she's the author of The Inward Outlook. And we're talking about your experience with this schizophrenic woman. And when you you, you had just said to her, I believe you, when she said, oh, I'm afraid people are going to jump out and grab me. And what, what transpired after that? Well, I said, I believe you, and she didn't quite hear it. She kept going on with the story, and I said, I believe you. And then she stopped. And for the first time, she lifted her head and looked up at me and stopped talking. I said, you know, these kinds of things can happen. 
And so I had her complete attention because I could see no one had ever really listened to her and validated the possibility. And, um, and then what I said was, but, you know, here's the problem. These kinds of things can happen. But what you're doing is you're walking home every night expecting this thing to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. So it could happen, and if it did happen, you would probably deal with it at the time. But in the meantime, maybe you could stop feeling the pressure of worrying about it, and you could just really enjoy the walk home. So she listened to that, and I never heard the story again. And so we had the opportunity, because some of the patients were quite cogent at times. We had the opportunity to then see what she really wanted. She wanted to go back to high school, and she wanted to get her GED, and she wanted to be able to live um, in assisted living rather in the, than the board and care that she was living in. And her psychiatrist at the time had told her that that was impossible and she would never get better than she was. And yeah. so you—and I got in trouble for— for contradicting that. But um, fortunately, my psychiatrist in my clinic was, they had my back. But she improved, and eventually she did go on. She did get her GED, and she did move out on her own. So that's a wonderful example of the kind of work that came out of this background that you Absolutely. were talking about. And I'd, I'd like to talk about about that whole thought process that you were working with her uh, with that thought process. And you point out in, in your book and in your writing that thought creates our experience of reality. Now, if we, if we think about the kind of new age way they say you can create your own reality, you know, as some people repeat it that way. But you're talking about something different. You're saying thought creates our experience of reality. So flesh that out for us a bit. Well, to really get at that, um, we probably should start talking about the three principles and the and the two modes of thought, which I do go into in depth in the book. Um, but to address what you just said, uh, there's definitely— um, sort of a catchphrase about creating your own reality or positive thinking or if you think the thing that it can happen. And I'm not, you know, judging that. But it doesn't really give you access to the natural ease that we have available to us once we understand the underpinnings of how thought works. And uh, this model... You know, you talk about um, working with the persistently mentally ill, but I've also used this principle-based model with children, with teachers, with families, with professionals, lawyers, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and now for the last years I've been working in the corporate world with um, leaders who work with leaders. So I've been working with some of the consultants who work with the C-suite of global Fortune 1000 companies, the names of whom you would all recognize. Um, my interest in doing that is that if I can assist a consultant who's going to go into a C-suite, which I'm not going to do, uh, to shift their perception so that they can bring that possibility of perceptual shift to the leader, to the CEO of a 
company that maybe has 500,000 people. Mm-hmm. Then the whole culture of the company shifts. And and the and the 500,000 people start to interact with each other differently, but then those people go home and they go to their families and they go to their worlds. And so my real interest in writing the book is to facilitate an awakening for human consciousness. So you would be what we would term or the what Bucky Fuller would term a trim tab. <laughs> you know that that little tab that that kind of moves first and then then the whole rudder of a of a large ship then is able to move and then the ship changes directions but the trim tab is just a small little tab but it is the first kind of increment yes that starts the momentum of change yes and we all are trim tabs and we all have access to the to the insight that catalyzes that capacity within each of us. So so every time, it's a little off track, I'll get back to it, but every time each one of us has an insight and moves more towards our own growth and development for positive change, it makes available to any other person interested in that particular venue, it makes that whole world that we've created available to them. Mm-hmm. So everything we do really does connect to everyone else on the planet. Um, I so, would love for you to, because you've mentioned several times, the three principles. So yes. maybe we should, I'm now I can hear our listeners saying, okay, well, what is it? What is it? <laughs> what is she talking about? I want to know. So wh- what do you mean by the three principles? Okay, that's great. Now, this takes us back to Sid, Sidney Banks' work. And uh, what I'll say about this whole technology, if you will, is that it's very simple. It's not necessarily easy. It takes something, um, which anything of worth does. The three principles are are mind, consciousness, and thought. And mind is, we can point to mind, but we actually can't describe mind. Mind is the everything and the nothing. It's, it's the absolute. It's the one substance out of which all things come. So anything we can say about it is less than what it is. And we can only articulate about it as much as we understand. So are you saying it's formless? It's the formless. It's it is the I would call it the formless. Okay, so it ha- it has no form, but it has I'm going to say energy or something. It has something. It has something. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, and I'm going to just say the best thing is to not figure it out because the only way we can figure it out is through the intellect, and the intellect is a product of it, so the intellect can actually never get it. Now, we can glimpse it, but um, and so maybe I'll point to that in a little bit. Okay. So for the listeners and for us, and myself included, don't try and figure that out, but just be with it. There's a source of everything and nothing. It was funny, by the way, when I was writing the book, I was trying to find words to, and I realized, well, I am such an overachiever because I am trying to write a book about something you can't talk about. <laughs> so there's, Talk about an impossible task. Okay. So there's mind, and then consciousness is the movement of mind through us according to our level of understanding. So consciousness is the gift we have that brings thought to life. And just kind of be with us if it doesn't quite make sense. 
thought as the variable. So there's what I call capital T thought, which is the divine attributes that we aspire to. They are, that is the thought in the realm of infinite intelligence. All thought that's possibly available would be capital T thought. The variable is personal thought, and that's the, that's what we have available to us. We have access to universal thought, but how we live our life is through personal thought. And personal thought, that would also be, that would uh, worry, we worry, oh, yes. memory might yes. be part of it. Yes. So that's the personal yes. thought. Yes, yes. So... So let me just say, mind and consciousness work in concert to bring thought to life according to the character of the thought. So mind and consciousness don't care what the quality of the thought is. You want to worry? Mind and consciousness come together and create the experience of worry. If you're wanting more peace in your life, how much are we thinking about the lack of peace? And how much are we thinking about peace? It's like, where are we placing our attention? Exactly. So, like in a garden, if you water the lilies and don't water the weeds, the lilies will grow and the weeds will die. If you water the weeds and you don't water the lilies, the weeds will grow. So, water to the flower is like attention to thought. You know, Laura, I'm I'm struck by the fact that the the three— pieces that you're talking about, mind, or in principles, mind, consciousness, and thought. Now, many of us would just think those things are totally interchangeable, that they're one thing, not three things. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Well, they actually are. Oh, I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for purposes of teaching, it's nice ah. to kind of break them down. Okay. In fact, Sid used to say, don't get too excited about the three principles because there's only one. <laughs> and we would be like, okay. but, but for purposes of, of uh, how, we, it, how it manifests explaining in our this, life, especially to have access to it for our humanity, I'm just going to kind of break it down. So let me take the mind, consciousness, and thought. Mind and consciousness working in concert to produce the experience of reality according to the character of the thought. So then we look at there's actually two modes of thought available to every human being. So the reason this is so useful is that it's principle-based, so it's deeper than any content that's why I can talk to kids and I can talk to CEOs because I listen to the content and I hear where the challenge is and I bring it back to principle. So uh, what's an example of a content? Let's say uh, a kid is talking about something and how would you work with that? Give us an example. Well, I'll give you an example from my own life. Okay. Um, my son is an awesome young man. And when he was a teenager, and a very honest young man, but when he was a teenager, oh, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he wanted to go spend the night at his friend's house. And I was a single mom, single working mom, and he was going to go visit his friend. And I said, okay, fine. So something came up, and I needed to 
uh, uh, talk to him. So I called his friend's house, and I asked for Isaac. And uh, Ben answered the phone. He said, well, Isaac's not here. And I said, really? Well, Isaac told me he was going to be here. And Ben was like, oh, well, uh." and (laughs) I was like, forget it, Ben. It's too late. So he told me where he was, and he was out with some girl, and they were doing something, and I called him. I said, Isaac, come home. All right, let's. I want to go on with that example in just one moment. I want to tell our listeners I'm here with Dr. Laura Basha, and she's the author of The Inward Outlook. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Laura Basha, and she is the author of The Inward Outlook. And we're talking about an example of how you would work with the three principles and just kind of grounding it for us in this story of your own son who was um, um, said he was going over to a friend's as a teenager, and he didn't actually go there. So go on with that, please. So— So I called him, and I said, come home now. And so he did. And between the time of hanging up and him coming home, I was walking through the house like, don't you know what I've done for you? And how dare you? You know, that whole thing. And finally, I caught myself. And I thought, oh, this will work out great. (laughs) You know, you better get yourself together. And I I got uh, curious because he's a really honest kid. And I got curious, and I thought, I wonder what his thinking was. I wonder what his thinking was. So I calmed myself down, and uh, knowing that a person's experience is created with how they see life. So I was coming from how I was perceiving it, but I wasn't giving him the opportunity to tell me how he was perceiving it. So he came home, we sat down, and I said, I said, uh, Isaac, you lied to me. He said, I didn't lie to you, Mom. And I was looking at him. And like any one of us would say, uh, I was looking at him and I thought, oh my gosh, he really believes that. I said, really, you weren't lying to me. How does that make sense to you? And he said, well, there was this party I wanted to go to. And I knew if I asked you, you wouldn't let me go. So I had to tell you something so that I could go. And I said, and that doesn't occur to you as a lie? And he said, no. And I said, well, Isaac, can you see how that would occur as a lie to me? And he got really quiet, and his eyes filled up with tears. And he said, yeah, Mom. So I said, what does it cost us? And he said, trust. I said, yeah, Isaac, it costs trust. It takes a long time to build trust. So you want to look and see how living that way is going to support you in the way you want to be living. 
So it just opened up a whole possibility of a new conversation with him. And I think for most of us, we don't cut our kids that kind of slack to see the innocence in the choices they're making because the way it made sense to him until he sort of realized that, of course, it didn't make sense. So so you helped him rather than than jumping on him and punishing him and just imposing this view of what he was doing on him, you you changed the context. You opened up the context in a very non-threatening way with him. I mean, I, I think it was just extraordinary. And, and you also had curiosity. You didn't come at it assuming that he was lying. Well, but you have to notice, and this is for our listeners too, I did right away. Yes, right. So the possibility with this work is that you can catch yourself, and I had like maybe five minutes, from being completely righteously justified to not being attached to that point of view and getting respectful to, to how the other person is seeing life. That's another way I was affected with the chronically mentally ill, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, what they hear that we call psychotic, they think is real. And so that's true for all of us. For my son, that perception was real to him until he sort of— what I did was, and, and what's available to all of us, first I had to deal with my own way of thinking— and recognize that I was caught up in it before I could go back to the formless and stand in not knowing. Does, does this have something to do with um, the comment that you, you make about life moves from the center to the circumference? Yes. Does it have something to do with that? It's everything to do with that. It's oh, what the inward yeah. outlook means. So. And and I and I want to take a minute to go back to the two modes of thought because it will help clarify this. But there's a way to access the formless that's always available to us, and we just we don't remember. Like everything I'm talking about is not really a new information for people, but it helps us remember because we forget. So we get more attached to our personal thinking. Uh, You know, human beings, particularly Western culture human beings, like to know. We are not comfortable not knowing. It's true. Oh, man, we want answers. We want answers. If if I don't have the answer, then you have the answer. (laughs) And if you don't have the answer, then I can always Google the answer because somewhere (laughs) on the planet somebody has the answer. You bet. The the So, if I could, let me talk a little about the two modes of thought, because it will clarify something. So, there's one mode of thing, and, and the, these are principle-based, because this is how every human being, cross-gender, cross-generation, uh, cross-culture, is designed. So, who how we make ourselves up, like how we become the personalities that we are known to be comes from how we were raised, what our parents thought, what the community we grew up in thought, um, 
what the spiritual beliefs were, what the culture was, what the what the country was that we were born into, uh, what our education is, what experiences we had, what we made those experiences mean. All of that is in the repository of the intellect. It's the memory. It's the memory bank. And and it also lives in our body, too. I mean, it's it's a, a feeling thing, too. Yes. 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 Just, so we tend to uh, refer back to the, to the experiences we've had and what we've made them mean, but it doesn't occur to us that that's thinking. It occurs to us as that's the way it is. You're born into a culture. There's a whole discourse of that culture that we are blind to. When you're born into America, there's a whole cultural context. If you're born in the South, if you're born in the North, if you're born in France, if you're born in China, mm-hmm. there's different cultural uh, thought systems that are so intrinsic in the culture that it doesn't occur to you as a thought system. As soon as you step into a corporation, you are part of a global mindset of corporation. As soon as you become a CEO, there's a whole overlay that you step into. An artist, a radio interviewer, there's a whole world around that. So it's just thought, but we don't see it that way. Now, because we like to know so much, we assume that there's a way to find an answer through the data bank of the intellect. But the intellect is like a computer. It can only, you can only get out of it what's been put into it. So you cannot sit down at your computer and say, give me an insight, right? So that's what we could call process thinking or memory. Now, the other mode of thinking is what I call flow mode, which I've written about in the book. Other people have talked about flow. Flow is this kind of diffuse, in-the-moment thinking. You have nothing on your mind but what's happening in the present. And flow is the access to infinite intelligence, omniscient wisdom, omnipotent love. It's compassion. It's genius. It's creativity. It's where... Michelangelo lived and Da Vinci lived and, and, and uh, you know, all the greats. They, you know, Einstein, they tapped into that. The thing we don't realize is that realm of infinite intelligence is available to all of us. But we are so besotted, if you will, with our own thinking, not a judgment, not a criticism, but just what's so, that we don't allow ourselves to listen for what we don't know. To, I, I didn't want to emphasize it. Just I, I was going to ask something, but to listen to what we don't know. I just want to emphasize what you just said. But also, um, it's like in our culture, that free flow mode of thinking and being is one thing, but we emphasize in our culture the problem-solving mode. That's a different kind of mode, isn't it? It's not the, the it's not the same as what you're talking about. No, it is different. It's really useful. I mean, you want to have memory. Like if you got up in the morning and didn't remember how to put your shoes on, or how to drive your car, or how to balance your checkbook, uh, it would be a problem. 
So memory is a good thing, but um, in problem solving, the the best way to solve a problem would be to allow yourself to access that flow, and in that state of mind, then you pull up the data bank, so that the see. They can work in conjunction, but not not having the problem solving rule over that that more creative, uh, formless. Yes. N- not knowing. Yes. Or not even need to yes. know, but just allow it. Yes. It's like allowing. Yeah. Something to create itself almost. And let me say a little bit about how how to access that because it sounds could sound kind of airy fairy but it's very practical. So if you stay in that problem solving mode or if you stay in that process thinking so that all you're doing is remembering the past that's kind of being inside the box because you're looking for an answer that actually doesn't exist and so we kind of drive ourselves crazy looking for something. Now there's a feeling associated with that and it could be a feeling of stress, could be a feeling of frustration, could be a feeling of anger, could be a feeling of hopelessness. The thing that we want to do is we want to start to identify for ourselves, how do we feel when we're in a certain situation and we're caught up? So like when I'm going to balance my checkbook, I don't like balancing my checkbook. So I already feel the tension around that. Now, if I trace it back to thought, because it's all thought, and I really look, the tension is really because I'm thinking, I don't want to balance the checkbook. I'm going to have to manage my money. I'm going to have to look and see what I found. This is going to take time. I've got to get detail. There's like this onslaught of thinking that I don't necessarily distinguish. I'm just feeling anxious, and I'm trying, and I'm avoiding something. So if, however, I take the time to quiet my mind, to kind of forget what I know, to get present. Some people meditate. You might go for a stroll. You might have a cup of tea. Just clear your head of any attention to thinking from the past. And that's a practice, by the way. And then just be with the checkbook. All the stuff you need to know about balancing the checkbook comes to you. I'm here with Dr. Laura Basha, and she's the author of The Inward Outlook. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
My guest is Dr. Laura Basha, and she is the author of The Inward Outlook. We're talking about the free-flow state of thinking and the problem-solving state of thinking, and you gave the example of resisting doing their checkbook. Yes, and uh, so the idea is if you quiet your mind and pay no attention to thinking from the past, you just get present in the moment and allow that flow state of peace and quietness, and then you sit down to do the checkbook, the problem-solving is taking place inside of this feeling of peacefulness. So you actually have access to the best quality thinking because you have a conduit to infinite intelligence, and you're getting the job done that needs to be done, but you're in a state of well-being. So that's what we would call healthy psychological functioning, and we all can be living from that as soon as you can distinguish that you're caught up in your thinking. So the practice is to notice when you're out of sorts, because anytime you're out of sorts or upset, you can know that you're caught up in past thinking. You don't necessarily have to know even what it is. But if you can distract yourself from that, or if you have the practice of quieting your mind, just take your thinking off of the upset feeling, you will automatically be in flow. Because process thinking can't notice itself. If you're noticing you're caught up in your thinking, it's flow that's noticing. And that's the choice point where you can be back into flow. So going back to your very early example of working with the schizophrenic woman who was focused on somebody jumping out of the bushes and grabbing her, and you worked with her, and then she was able to change her attention uh, from that to something more expansive and life-enhancing, and she finished her her high school, and she did, you know, she started functioning again. So it really, that's that's the same example. I mean, that she was extreme, but we all are doing this on some level. Well, the place to work, the only place to work is with yourself. So what happened with her was I brought a listening from flow. I was listening from flow, and the insight that struck me was no one's ever heard her. Mm -hmm. So what she was doing was proving a point because no one would buy it, and I said, I believe you. So, so Laura, if we have to—all right, I get it. <laughs> Maybe we, we have to be our own listener. Yes. So that when we—you said when we're feeling upset or anything like that, or resistance towards something— that we start to listen to ourselves in the way that you listened yeah. to that woman, yeah. that schizophrenic woman. Yeah. We need to listen in in that quiet mind yes. to ourself. And it, and that expands the field from which we can function. Is you it, practice uh, listening to what you don't know, which means no attention on what you know. Uh, uh, that's why the fool is on the cover of the book. The fool knows that she doesn't know anything. So she listens for what she doesn't know and thus becomes the wisest of all. So as we practice 
turning our attention away from thoughts of worry, away from concern, away from self-judgment, and we practice listening from flow, then we have the possibility of bringing that to someone else. But it always starts with oneself. The only place, the only one to fix is over here. Mm -hmm. All the work is done is over here. Another subject that you bring up, and and you mention it and weaves throughout the book, which was surprising to me, and it's something called transformational humor, and how very important that is. Uh, and I, I know that there's a phrase that that you use um, in trans about uh, transformational humor. It enjoys fewer objections from the intellect. I love that. I just <laughs> love that that it it it's it's a kind of like heartedness. It it yes. moves us to kindness and joy. So say something about why transformational humor, what you mean by it, and why it's important. Well, um, uh, it's a term that I actually. Uh, coined when I was writing my dissertation because what it it occurred to me as I was working with this uh, particular model of psychology, which basically teaches people how to access our own innate health, I started looking, and and when we are at the highest state of of mental health, we have a lighthearted attitude that's very accepting and not judgmental. So I started looking at what occurred to me as a continuum of humor. So at one end of the continuum, you have the kind of humor that is at someone else's expense. It's um, almost mean-spirited. It's actually fear-based. And then you move, and there's all these different levels of humor that move into, you know, satire, uh, uh, of social satire, you know, which is a great way to make a point about what's happening in the world. You could move uh, sort of up that continuum to f- play and fun, and a lot of the the um, humor that's brought into businesses has to do with people getting in good moods and getting better rapport. As you move up to the other end of that continuum, what struck me was transformational humor is the quality of feeling that one experiences when you're listening to flow or you're listening to the Tao or you're listening now. We talk about the power of now. Now, to me, the power of now, the the actual moment of now is not time-constrained. Now is eternal. So if we try and put now into a time continuum, it doesn't make sense. But transformational humor is the emotional experience we have of being in the now because the only feelings that exist in now are those those divine attributes of love and joy and compassion. So when one practices being present in the moment, one has access to transformational humor, which is the highest the highest quality of thought available to us because we're connected to infinite intelligence, and it allows people to deal with the most atrocious situations. So that's the point. I mean, that it's not, you know, life has, stuff happens, and, you know, there, there are things that are going on. I mean, we're going through a divorce, and and we're dividing up possessions and even finding out where we're going to—the children will live and where Absolutely. even the dog is going to live. Absolutely. And those are real, real issues. But you're saying if you hold it in a certain way with a kind of lightness of being, 
Is that uh, well? Uh, you don't even hold, hold it. it. It actually comes to you as you allow it, because it is the it is the the characteristics of that realm of of infinite intelligence, omniscient wisdom, omnipotent love. It's it, 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 if you've lost someone, then you feel the grief and the loss of that person inside of a context of gratitude and love. What is that, right? So Mm -hmm. standing in the now, you have access to all those divine attributes that are timeless and eternal where you can experience the time-constrained experiences of human beings. Exactly. Thank you. Now, one other thing that I'd love to talk about before we end our conversation today, and it's just a beautiful chapter that you have on silence and quiet mind. And you say, you use a phrase which just really popped out at me, silence is the guru. And you talk about silence actually has a a sound, a frequency. I mean, it, it... how is that? Say something about silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the silence, everything takes place in the silence. Uh, uh, all healing takes place in the silence. All transformation takes place in the silence. We have words that point us in that direction, but the actual transformation takes place in the silence of, of the formless. And if you listen for the silence... You'll hear it. Now, you will have to do it for yourself. As soon as you said it, I paid attention to the silence. And for me, it's a very high-pitched frequency that if I pay attention to, I can always hear it. If I'm uh, in a room leading a group, I, I align myself with that before I go in to speak. I did that before I came in here so that there's a resonance to the silence, which... Um, is before form, it's before words, but it's where all life exists. You said energy. It's where all of that is pulsating. And then through our thinking, it gets um, condensed into form. But before form, uh, you can stand in the silence and it's quite powerful. There's actually a thunderous silence. So um, you got to give that one yeah, a try. You got to <laughs> give it a try. I just want to mention uh, one other quote from your book because I it just really struck me and I put it in big red letters because I, I loved it. Um, you talk about the power of gentleness and you say, gentleness generates no resistance it is irresistible. Therein lies its power. Gentleness generates no resistance. It is irresistible. Therein lies its power. Hey, that says it all, doesn't it? Laura, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions. Thank you, Justine. It was really a pleasure. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Laura Basha, and she's the author of The Inward Outlook. And if you want to know more about her work and the book and all of her work, you can go to her website. It's whitebirdrising.com. 
whitebirdrising.com. That's whitebirdrising.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3541. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.